So Steve, I've got a number for you, but I'm going to ask you to solve for it. Solve for it? Yeah. See, the thing is, in math class, my daughter's learning scientific notation, uh, converting fractions to decimals to percents and, and vice versa. And I've been quizzing her to help those conversions get stuck in her mind. So to get our number of the episode, I thought I'd give you one of those conversions. Okay. Okay, here you go. Uh, it's an easy one. Convert 10 to the negative 1 to a percent. Got it. So 10 to the negative 1 is the same as 0.1, which makes it 10%. That's right, Steve. So 10%. Uh, so since 2010, consistently less than 10% of rental units are affordable for very low-income renter households. So in these units, uh, very low-income renters pay no more than 30% of their income on rent uh, when using renter-only income. And the other 90% of units are unaffordable to very low-income renters. And those numbers are pre-pandemic. That number is familiar. Did you get that from our recent research report, Rental Affordability Reexamined? Well, uh, well, yes, I, I did. Then you know there's a lot of content in there to talk about. And we might also bring up one of your favorite concepts from math class. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. Today, we have a member of the research and modeling team here in Freddie Mac Multifamily. Kevin Burke is the primary author of much of our research related to affordability. He's done a variety of work showing the magnitude of the renter affordability issues, how it varies across geography, and how it changes over time. Today, we'll get a little deeper into some of those issues and get a better understanding of renter affordability, both pre and post pandemic. Thanks for being here, Kevin. Thank you. It's great to be here again. Welcome back, Kevin. Uh, so the new paper that I mentioned in the intro, uh, Rental Affordability Reexamined, has a lot of really interesting stuff in it. And I think I gave a little bit of a hint of that uh, in the intro and, uh, and also why the paper is so interesting just by citing renter income. So tell us a little bit about what you're showing in this paper and how it builds on the work of your earlier papers. Sure. Yeah. So this is a more nuanced analysis of uh, a paper that we put out uh, about a year ago. So it was called uh, Diminishing Affordability Inescapable. And in that paper, we were just trying to track um, affordability changes over time with a special emphasis on uh, very low income households. So those are households that make at or below 50% uh, of the area median income. Um, so in that paper, we looked at um, uh, we did the analysis on a national scale, and we looked from 2010 to uh, 2017, and we looked at how um, uh, the stock of affordable units changed. And so um, basically the findings were, you know, um, from those two years, so from 2010 to 2017, you see a pretty steep decline in the um, percentage of units that are affordable to very low-income households. Uh, so this paper... <coughs> This new one, um, Renter Affordability Reexamined, this, uh, like I said, is a little bit more of a nuanced look um, because in, in the first paper, we took um, uh, family income as the income measure. And so family income um, is really exactly what it sounds like. I mean, it, it's just the median income across all families um, nationwide. Or I mean, it's broken out by metro, but um, really it, it considers families regardless of whether or not they are uh, renters or owners. So in this paper, we decided to look 
only at the renter component of it. So we're not going to get you know any noise from uh, owner households. We're just going to focus specifically on renter households. Um, and so really there are two big findings um, that came out of this paper. Um, the first one that's pretty intuitive and pretty easy to understand is that the affordability levels in each year dropped like very, very substantially. Um, so for example, in the first paper where we used family income, 55.7% uh, of uh, rental units were uh, available, or I'm sorry, affordable to very low income households. Um, so that was back in, in 2010. Um, <clears throat> that same year for this new paper, the renter affordability reexamined, where we only look at renter income, uh, that dropped pretty substantially. So it went all the way down to um, 8.6%. So 55.7 to 8.6, obviously enormous. And the explanation for it is pretty straightforward. Um, renters make substantially lower income than owners do. So uh, the ratio, I mean, it you know obviously varies across the country, um, and every year is a little bit different. But the ratio of owner income to renter income is uh, about two to one. So <clears throat> that alone is enough i mean like that because that shifts down the income so much it is now <clears throat> significantly more difficult for a unit to be considered affordable so so that's the the first finding um the second one is a little bit more curious and takes a little bit more uh explanation um <clears throat> so you know, with the diminishing affordability paper, we found that, like I said, you know, there, there's a pretty steep drop off. Um, so e even though the percentage of affordable units for every year was pretty high, so in 2010, it started at 55.7%, um, it, it did drop down to 39.1% by 2017. So still like a very high level, but like a, a very noticeable drop. We did not see that same drop when we only focused on renter income. In fact, there was a small gain. So it went from about 8.6% to 9.6% in 2018. So because we did it a year later, we had that extra year of data. So <clears throat> this finding was very curious because we hear all around the industry and in our own research that affordability is worsening or at the very least, it's not getting better. I mean, like, you know, depending on the studies, depending on uh, which metrics are used, sometimes it will either be that <clears throat> that uh, rents just are outpacing income. Some will say that there's, you know, like maybe roughly parity, um, but, you know, over the past few years, so, you know, definitely not getting any better. It was very strange though, with this result, because it does, you know, going from 8.6% to 9.6%, that's a full percentage point um, higher, like a full percentage point of units that are affordable to very low income renters. So <clears throat> I got to, um, you know, the, the, the really like the core reason for this is that renter income grew faster than um, 
than owner income and like the overall income like during this period. So like, like renter income like grew um, pretty quickly. Uh, <clears throat> but you know, I was thinking about it. So from 2010 to 2018, the renter pool was not the same. So it, it, census did not do a longitudinal study. They did not take the renters from 2010 and then, you know, survey them again in, in 2018. They just looked at renter households in 2010, renter households in 2018. And so that's an important distinction because we, like the, basically the, the composition of renters changed, right? Over that eight year span. And so, you know, just that very concept got me thinking, um, uh, quite frankly, back to my high school and college statistics classes. Because um, I remembered a <clears throat> phenomenon called Simpson's paradox. And so basically Simpson's paradox is a phenomenon where uh, slicing and dicing data in different ways can lead to unintuitive results when they're aggregated up. Um, so kind of a simpler way of saying it is <clears throat> a trend can either disappear or completely reverse if you take a a, a population and you um, like put the data into different groups so the different groups will tell a different story than the data as a whole um, so so it's a very interesting concept and it's it's one that's a little bit difficult to grasp but um, if, if you can just imagine for a moment maybe a you know, a group of renters and a group of owners. And so their, their incomes are uh, substantially different. Um, like I said before, it's about a two to one ratio of, of incomes. Um, so, so let's just say that, you know, owners have an average income of 100,000 and the, the renter group has an average of 50,000. There's some variation within each, but that's, it's about, you know, all of them are around that, uh, like clustered around those numbers. If a member of, or if an owner becomes a renter and that owner had an income about, of about 100,000, that will actually increase the average income of both groups while the group as a whole um, did not change at all. So the, the reason why it increases it for both is because for renters, there's now the arrival of a high income earner um, and for owners, they lost a, you know, maybe a relatively low income earner. So maybe that maybe that income earner was only at like 95,000 or, or something like that, uh, whereas the average was 100. So the renters gained a high income earner and the owners lost a low income earner. So it increases. So, uh, Kevin, Kevin, sorry to cut you off, but uh, I just want to make sure I'm understanding this. And, and also just to say, Steve, uh, you promised me my favorite concept from math class, uh, which is Simpson's paradox. And, and you kept that promise, so thank you. Uh, but Kevin, ju just to be clear, what you're demonstrating is that uh, just by moving around who is counted in what category, it looks like both categories are doing better. But in reality, that's not what's going on. Yes, and, and, and that's really what happened with, um, <clears throat> that's one of the findings of this report, is that it does appear as though, you know, the owner income is increasing quickly and renter income is also increasing quickly. So, so that that simple example I just mentioned about you know the groups of renters and owners, if you know in year one you have the original composition, and then in year two nothing changes at all except that one person who's an owner now just decides to rent, because the income characteristics of the entire group did not change, 
then from year one to year two, there would be no growth, right? 0%, completely flat. But for renters, they just acquired a, um, like that group just acquired a high income earner. So now from year one to year two, their income has increased. Um, the same thing happened with owners. They, they lost a, you know, maybe a relatively uh, low income earner that's still high by renting standards, but low by owning standards. Um, and so that will also increase their income. So maybe, you know, just making up numbers, maybe both of them uh, show a 3% increase in income, when in reality, uh, the income of everybody stayed the exact same. Yeah, so maybe maybe I can jump in here too, Kevin. Just, uh, I mean, I remember as we discussed this, it was, it was during the development, it was, you know, counterintuitive in some ways, but then in some ways it makes things kind of come together in, in that, you know, during the years, you know, post the great financial crisis, um, the home ownership rate was was really dropping, right? As more households were were put in a position and they were choosing to rent, and uh, and so that makes sense that uh, uh, more of those high income households, higher or you know, relative to other renters, um, are moving into the renter space, but they might have been lower income when they were in the ownership side. So. So it makes sense that, as we talked about at the beginning, while the affordability percentage is really low, it's that lower than 10% that whole time, uh, it could actually grow. And I think that as we think about that going forward, right, like, so to the extent that, you know, the recession that we're in right now with the pandemic is, is put us in a position with really low interest rates, and, and that's driving some people to choose to move into home ownership. So that could that 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 has implications as well, I suppose. Yeah, and so the the, the homeownership rate has certainly increased um, uh, during the pandemic, and yeah, it's at least what some preliminary um, data is showing. Um, and so, really, looking forward, that's going to have like we, we would expect for that to have, I guess, really like the opposite effect, you know, like that we've we've seen in this paper, uh, the rental affordability. Um, Reexamined paper, uh, where you know we, we do have like this slight rise. Um, if the home ownership rate does increase, then we probably would expect for it to kind of go in the other direction again. Um, and I, I think really to you know to understand that we need to understand the mechanics of really what's happening with renter income and with owner income. Um, because, like you mentioned, Steve, I mean, it's it really is the you know the home ownership rate um, is 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 a big driver um, behind this disparity in income growth since 2010. Because um, during this period, there have been uh, about uh, a swing of about 1.5 million um, uh, renter households. Uh, so, so like based on historic trends. Um, we, we do see about 1.5 million more than um, than we would have expected based on based on historical trends, um, and and so in the grand scheme of things that might not sound like much, but that really can have some material impacts on the growth rates of these different incomes. Um, and so you know I remember when we started this analysis, it, it was at around the same time that we were doing uh, the diminishing affordability analysis and. Like I said, I had remembered about like Simpson's paradox, and 
so I just kind of went to the data and said, you know, and, and I forget, um, this has kind of gone through, you know, there's been mul multiple analysis on these, um, on, on this topic, but I, I forget which data source I was even looking at initially, but, you know, I remember just doing some calculations and calculating renter income growth, owner income growth, and all income growth. And it was sort of like a eureka moment. I remember looking at it and just saying, that's Simpson's paradox. And <clears throat> then I, I mean, I thought it was a, a really interesting finding because it's this counterintuitive result that we can put some rationale behind. Um, and so, <clears throat> like I mentioned before, the data that we have from census is not longitudinal. So it's, you know, regarding how that, like the 8.6%, like how that would have moved. Cause like, you know, the, the data on the surface, it goes up to 9.6%. But if we, you know, factor in the drop in the home ownership rate and the fact that that, you know, like really kind of inflated the growth rate of um, renter income, uh, you know, combined with some other factors, like we looked at, um, you know, the number of income earners increased in these renter households during that time, um, which, you know, more people living together can make it a little bit easier to, um, uh, to pay rent. Uh, you know, when we factor in these other um, factors, then what we find is, um, well, still a tiny bit of a question mark. I, I mean, we are pretty confident in saying that it, you know, didn't really increase, at least not by very much, but, you know, whether it was like a very, very slight increase, whether it was like the trend was flat, whether it like dropped a tiny bit, it, it's really difficult or I guess probably impossible to say with the data that we have. Um, but you know, we, we have like some indication based on, um, based on all the analysis that we did on it. Um, I, I mean, one thing of note actually for the paper is that, you know, from, uh, I think the result from 2010 to 2017 was different, but like for 2010 to 2018, um, renter income grew like pretty significantly faster than total in the country. It was about 31.4% to 24.8%. Yeah, I'm sorry, 24.8%. Um, for owners, it was a little bit less, um, so 23.3%. Um, so still, still symptomatic of, of Simpson's paradox that, you know, owner income growth and total income growth were like both, you know, like pretty close. And then renter income growth was much, much faster. Um, we, we did see the relationship though, where like both renter and owner were um, faster than all households um, for for a lot of metros. Um, uh, one of them being Jacksonville, like that one's that's one of the ones that was most pronounced in. And um, we also see in Jacksonville that the the home ownership rate dropped more than it did in the country. And so that result was um, pretty consistent. Uh, like we definitely saw a trend that you know larger uh, drops in home ownership it was more likely that renter income would, would grow much faster than total income. Um, but, but Steve, to your, to your point earlier, kind of expanding off of this study, um, you know, it's, it, it's kind of interesting because with the pandemic, the home ownership rate has increased. Like I said before, like preliminary data says that in the second quarter, the rate increased to 67.9 percent which in the previous quarter is only 65.3. So that's like a, that's a historic increase. 
and I think that part of that was due to like sampling issues and all, but, um, but still, I mean, like, even if it normalizes a little bit next quarter, based on what we're seeing around the industry, like the research, uh, some anecdotal evidence, um, we really think that it's, it's likely that the homeownership rate will materially increase as a result of the pandemic. Yeah. And I think, um, Somehow we need to notify the uh, high school statistics teacher of the country, at least in Jacksonville, um, of this issue. And, uh, and I think it make a, a special relevance to all the people in their class, right? Yeah, I agree. Uh, right. And the, I think that there was a secondary finding as well, right? There, there's multiple things that kind of happen under, under, the, under the surface of the data. And I think that uh, you, you found some that, that uh, uh, the household size can impact things as well. Uh, yes. So we did see that the um, number of income earners per household did increase um, from 2010 to 2018. Uh, so it was about a 2.4% increase, which, you know, again, like these these small changes might not seem like a whole lot, but they can have very you know material impacts. So we estimate that on a national level, uh, I, I mean, it, it, it varies a little bit by metro, but um, just kind of nationally speaking, this increase in the number of earners uh, increases um, the amount that can be paid on rent every month by about $22. Um, so if, if, if we were to correct for this $22, um, because I mean, really the number of earners per household, um, you, you know, we, we say that a little bit that's like an artificial increase because it, it's not actually about people earning more. It's just uh, people more likely to, um, you know, multiple people living together to try to make ends meet. Um, so if, if we did correct for this, and if, you know, if we did correct for that $22, uh, we would find that the number of um, units that are affordable to very low income uh, renters uh, would drop by about 4.2% or roughly 160,000 units. Yeah, and I think that you know these these can seem like kind of subtle issues, but but I think that it's really important to have identified these, uh, especially kind of moving into the pandemic. And I know our research kind of continues, but like you said already, the the home ownership rate kind of moving the other way a little bit right now. And then you know you think about people um, being more or less likely to have you know bigger households, right? Do that? Do they? Um, for multiple households, or do they have less because of a concern about more roommates uh, with with health concerns? So, so it is really important to uncover these issues. But maybe we'll like, go from there and kind of jump into, you know, questions that we've gotten as uh, as the pandemic has gone on, uh, and even from the very beginning, is the jobs that were were hit right. The sectors of the labor market that were hit hard were were expected to be renters, and so. Um, that led you to another line of research, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah. So, so pretty early on in the pandemic, um, we 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 had a, a goal of of finding the impact of the pandemic on renters' ability to pay rent. And so, there's there's many different factors to um, consider here. But ultimately, what we want to know is, you know, we we, we have numbers. Uh, as of uh, 2018, so that, those were the uh, that's the most recent you know data available data available at the time. Um, you know, like for for figuring out on a household level how this impacts renters. Um, 
And so with that data, we, we wanted to figure out like, okay, there's clearly been rampant job loss all across the country. And see, like you mentioned, um, it's hit renters especially hard. Um, and that's just because renters are, are more likely to be in, uh, like to work in industries that experienced um, relatively high job loss. Um, so you think a lot of like, you know, um, like service industries, you know, uh, or, you know, service shops, for example, um, you know, um, and like leisure and hospitality, uh, especially like they, that, those areas like did experience pretty severe job loss and they were disproportionately um, occupied. Like those jobs were occupied by, um, by renters. And so we, we did really want to just figure out like, okay, um, we don't have data like for every, you know, household in the country. Uh, that would be fantastic, <laughs> but unfortunately just not attainable. Um, and, even if we did, you know, it'd be very difficult to have like timely data on something like that. So we don't know exactly, you know, in every metropolitan country, or I'm sorry, we don't know exactly in every metropolitan area in the country um, the severity of of job loss exactly. Uh, we we can get some like aggregate numbers, but we can't get down to the household level, which is where we would need to get down in order to figure out. Um, you know, are they renters or owners and which income buckets are we talking about exactly? Um, so what we did was conduct a study to see like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take micro data from um, the census, so specifically from the American community survey. And in that data set, we can identify, you know, for every household and for every person, like, you know, are, are they renters? Um, which, which industry are they working in? What is their personal income? What is their um, rent? And so we, we can take that data and then essentially apply a shock, shock being the rampant job loss from the pandemic. And so we can say like, okay, in a, a certain industry, maybe there's 10% job loss. You know, 10% of the people in the industry have lost their jobs from the beginning of the pandemic till now. Um, and and the, the most recent data we have right now is from September. Um, so we say, okay, let, let, let's say for a certain industry, it's 10%. Then again, we, we don't know for each individual household if they did lose their job or not. But what we can do is say, okay, um, maybe we'll just assign everybody, every household a random probability. And... So that would be a number between, you know, 0% and 100%. And we'll compare that against that, the 10% job loss. So like just for a, a person who works in that industry. Um, so maybe if, if, if a person in that industry is, is randomly assigned a number of, you know, 55%, then that's greater than 10%. So we say that that person kept their job. Uh, maybe the next person is only 6%. So that's below 10%. So we say that person lost their job. Um, and with that, they lost, we, we assume complete income loss, which isn't um, always the case, but it's just an assumption of our, our analysis. Um, and we also assume that there's a 70% uh, chance that they will get state level unemployment benefits. So uh, that means that at least in most cases, about half of their income 
uh, is replaced up, up to a, a certain limit. But, you know, especially for lower income earners, we'll say that about half of their income is replaced by state level unemployment. Um, and so what we can then do once we have this data is aggregate it on an MSA level uh, and on a national level um, to see exactly how much this job loss has impacted um, renters' ability to, to pay rent. Um, and so, you know, we, we can do this for the, like I said, for the nation, we can kind of drill down into uh, specific states or MSAs, or in some cases, even cities. Um, and, and that really gives us a, a great way of quantifying um, the exact level of, you know, job loss in these different areas and among renters and different AMI groups. Um, and, you know, we, we had to run the analysis a few times just because, um, because we're using random numbers, there's, there's some variation. Uh, so we just kind of want to make sure that our analysis is robust. And what we found is that it, it is, I mean, with every run, obviously the numbers differ a little bit, but they, there's, there's not a whole lot of, of deviation. Um, and, and like I said, it, it, it just ended up being a, a very good way to determine um, the severity of, of the problem. Yeah, Kevin, I, you're right. And I think that this was uh, uh, a great line of research to go down because uh, we've talked at the beginning of this about how affordability is so difficult at the, at the bottom end of the income spectrum. Um, but this pandemic then kind of hits everywhere, right? And, and it's not necessarily just a, an even shift. And, and by looking at industries and knowing the industry mix across the country, you're able to get additional insights. And so, um, you know, we know that there's an affordability problem coming into, the, into this uh, that's been you know, studied by us and by others. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how, how the pandemic's impacted that. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, most of our analysis was done on, um, uh, you know, we, we can do it, like I said, on a national scale. Um, our primary focus for most of the analysis, though, is actually specifically on the city of Los Angeles. Um, and the reason for this is because um, the city of Los Angeles passed a uh, rental assistance program called the um, Emergency Rental Assistance Subsidy program. Um, and so this gave, uh, this is a, about a hundred million um, uh, dollar program. And the goal of it is to assist renters who have been affected by the pandemic. Um, so it, it provides a maximum of $1,000 per month um, uh, for, a, for a total maximum across you know, all months of, of 2000. Um, and it's expected to help about 50,000 renters. Um, so because of you know we have this um, uh, this program to base some of our analysis on, and you know like LA took a very deliberate step in um, addressing the affordability problems, um, we we decided to you know figure out uh, kind of with, with our own methodology, which which definitely was like distinct from um, the one that Los Angeles used, but you know how much need there is in the market. And so using job loss data from February to September, uh, we found that uh, on a monthly basis, um, there would need to be about 32 million uh, every month 
uh, in order for the uh, like everybody who has been affected by the pandemic um, for their like rent needs to be taken care of completely. Um, and so importantly, you know, this, this 30, uh, the specific number, the you know exact number is 31.9 uh, million. And so th- this is not meant to be like an exact comparison with the 100 million. Um, there, there are like, you know, many different parts that are, are different. Um, our population is a little bit different because we're looking at, you know, all households, whereas um, the ERAS program is, um, I believe, only two plus uh, unit um, properties. And, you know, th- there's also um, the the way that we would apply assistance is a little bit different. Um, so the ERAS program has a cap, whereas this one, um, you know, really doesn't have a cap. Uh, there are some instances, though, many instances where, you know, like somebody... <clears throat> might not be be eligible for ERAS. Um, and we would say that they are in our analysis. Um, that also happens a lot, like, you know, kind of vice versa. So it, it's, it, it really is a very much like inexact comparison, but, um, you know, we, that, that's just, that's the, the, you know, roughly 32 million or so is the number that we put on it. Um, and so that is, you know, that would alleviate rent burden, um, uh, completely, you know, like at a cap of, um, you know, it wouldn't help any more than getting somebody to 30% of um, their income on rent. Um, so there are like some some caps in it as well. But um, so, so that would really, um, with that amount of funding, it would really alleviate the problem. Um, um, I wouldn't say completely because it really only focuses on rent. It doesn't focus on like an income subsidy. Um, but you know, on a on a per household basis, uh, like so, for every you know um, every household that would receive assistance, the the average assistance would be about 450 um, uh, per month. So it's all on a monthly basis, not not annual. Um, uh, in the nation, it's a little bit less. It's about 435. Um, so the you know the the need in Los Angeles is a little more acute. Um, whereas in a place like Houston, um, it's actually only 383. So, you know, the, the need in a place like Houston wouldn't be as much as in Los Angeles. Um, and actually like really wouldn't even be as quite as much as, uh, in the nation. Kevin, there, there's something that strikes me as pretty remarkable about, uh, about this, whether you think of it for the near term and the impact on renter ability to pay rent or, or looking at it long term. Uh, it's pretty clever and it strikes me as, as pretty useful over time that we're able to look at and put dollar values on what the gap is between rent levels and where cost burden is and, and how to make that up. Uh, and it strikes me that there are a lot of things that can be done with this over time. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And um, so that's been one of the greatest parts about this analysis is that, um, you know, it, its scope is not limited just to pandemic analysis. Um, this, this is something that we really, this is the type of analysis that we haven't done before. And I think that going forward, it can be very useful um, even to look at like hypothetical situations of, you know, like what if, you know, like <clears throat> there's shocks to certain industries or something like that, you know, like how that would affect renters. Um, and what's also pretty great is that there are others in the industry who are using a pretty similar approach. 
um, you know, the like Urban Institute put out a paper in June um, trying to measure something pretty similar to what we're measuring. Um, there, there's definitely some differences in the analysis, um, one of which maybe the biggest actually is uh, in terms of like the, you know, results is just that theirs used, um, I think it may have been May jobs report numbers. Um, I, I could be off by a month or so, but um, whereas ours used September and, you know, my September, the unemployment rate had dropped pretty dramatically. Um, so, so that it, it, all this is, you know, like kind of contributed to some differences between the analyses, but, um, you know, we came up with this and they came up with their analysis and they've worked with other organizations, um, like the Furman Center, um, Turner Center, um, and, you know, it, it's, it was just really interesting because it's, it's essentially a case of like independent invention that, you know, we come up with a way of, of solving this, uh, or, you know, trying to quantify this problem and um, others in the industry took a very, very similar approach. So, so yeah, it was, it, Kevin, it was really encouraging to see that, you know, folks, the, the folks that you mentioned, in addition to, I think the joint center, were doing similar kind of analyses and, it, it, it'll be useful for, for this and, and for other things, as we've said. I also am interested because, um, as, as, as discussed earlier, you know, the, the different segments of you know, income or the different bands of income are affected differently, right? And you're able to capture that in this analysis as well. Yes, and that's one of the greatest things about using the the micro data, so that we get you know like um, household and even like person level data um, instead of just aggregate statistics. Um, so for every household, we're able to to determine which income bucket they fall into, um, and this is a pretty great part of the analysis, just because you know it it gives us a chance to look at how the different income buckets are affected. Um, so like for example. Uh, <clears throat> You know, like I said, renters generally have lower income. Um, so the the income limits that were that we used um, are from uh, HUD, and so a, a, a pretty and so they use like uh, family income, and so a, a pretty high percentage of renters in LA are um, actually at the thirty percent AMI mark. Um, so we find that. Uh, <clears throat> About 29% of LA renters are in the 30% AMI bucket, um, otherwise known as um, uh, extremely low income. Uh, despite that, they actually only get about 8.9% of total aid, um, which actually isn't, you know, in some ways not super surprising. Um, lower income renters are a little bit less likely to be employed in the first place. Um, and so, you know, because of that, like job loss is less likely to affect uh, these households. Uh, and this actually was a, a pretty similar finding to, you know, what um, uh, the Urban Institute, Urban Institute cited in their paper. Um, but, you know, and also the, you know, households at this level, um, also like, you know, the 50% level, 50% AMI, that is, um, they'll generally have lower rent. So like if they lose their job and they need to be subsidized, there's not quite as much to subsidize. So they get a little bit less aid uh, comparatively. Um, you know, some of the, the higher buckets, so when you get up to like 150% AMI, um, you know, 
they definitely they they have like a, a pretty high share of um, uh, the income or the I'm sorry the the aid distribution, um, <clears throat> but also generally like the higher income higher income renters are a little bit more easily able to divert other funds and savings to rent payments. Um, so really, like you know, some of the households that got hit the hardest were um, kind of in the the middle of the spectrum. You know, maybe around like the eighty percent to a hundred percent AMI. Um, and one important distinction in the um, uh, the ERAS program that Los Angeles implemented was that uh, they they capped it at eighty percent AMI. Um, and so households that are like just a little bit above this, uh, many of them. Are struggling because maybe you know they they had a, a high chance of losing their job, and um, they are less able to mitigate uh, negative effects of job loss. And um, you know if if they don't get as much aid, it uh, you know it really can acutely affect this group. Kevin, thank you so much. Uh, it's It's been a great discussion today, and you brought up a, a few counterintuitive points for us. Uh, so looking forward to having you back on the program next time. Thanks so much. Yep, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.